Women make up nearly 50% of all gamers, yet only a small percentage of women play esports professionally. It's time to figure out how to change that. The Knights want to empower women to build their esports empire. Along with our partner PNC Bank, we are adamant about creating a more equitable future for gamers. There is no one-size-fits-all solution, so we'll be tackling the issue from all angles, featuring insights from a variety of subject matter experts and professionals. I'm Kat DeShields-Moon with the Knights. Welcome to the Women in Esports podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Women in Esports podcast series powered by PNC. Over the next couple of weeks, we will be talking to some of the best and brightest minds working in and outside of the esports industry to better understand why women aren't more prevalent in esports and the work we can all do to create a more inclusive ecosystem. For this very first episode, I am honored to be talking to you. Drum roll, please. I'll spare your eardrums. Marcus Howard, welcome to the show, Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hit the table because it's too close to the microphone. I just want to pantomime some drum roll. Thank you. This is awesome. I appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely. So for those that don't know, if you're on LinkedIn and you follow eSports, you've probably run into one of Marcus's posts. He is a true visionary, dare I say futurist, when it comes to the eSports scene and is currently the CEO of Menarina, an eSports activist, and a member of the 2020 Inaugural Game Awards Future Class, which is pretty dope. So I'm sure you get asked this question a lot, but it's one of my favorites. How did you get started in gaming and eSports? Great question, and I'm sure you'll see this coming, but Super Mario Brothers 3. <laughs> Actually, a quick story. This is, this. I used to have my own personal copy. In my entrepreneurship journey over the last eight years, I guess two or three years ago, unfortunately, I lost my personal copy of Super Mario Brothers um, at a, a pitch event. Uh, and my brother and sister were pissed. Actually, I don't, my sister might not know yet, so shoot, we definitely pissed. <laughs> Uh, but yes, yeah, so I got that when I was six, um, and that inspired me to learn more about technology and learn more about coding. In ninth grade, started coding my first app as a TI on the TI-83 Plus as a video game, because you could put games on those things. Graduated from college in 20, uh, 2008, and my brother and I started our own tech consulting firm, but we still love playing video games. So we said, hey, now that we know how to code, let's try this game design and gaming, game development thing again. And so we started building a, a puzzle game with some RPG mechanics. And at that point, we recognized that game discovery has been broken for decades. So we built a multimedia search engine to solve that problem. And in 2017, we started doing live events because we recognized that 70% of our audience was international. And we didn't have a strong local presence. So we started introducing kids and their parents and, and teachers in the ecosystem to family-friendly games that are also cool. Right, because Rocket League is cool, Minecraft is cool, um, Brawlhalla, and those are all technically indie games. So that's what we were building in our showcase, and I got invited to speak at DreamHack 2017, and that's when I saw esports in person for the first time, and I knew immediately like this is what we needed to be. The next two years, esports made up 75% of our revenue, so we shut down the search engine, and now we're here with MetaArena, connecting brands of all sizes. Um, to video games so they can authentically and digitally engage their entire community. I know that was a mouthful, but that's that's Metarina in a nutshell. Ah, no, that's wonderful insight. You know, and the work you're doing in Metarina is incredible, but the work that you're doing to grow the esports scene in Tampa is also incredible. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing there? 
Sure. I'm the president of the Tampa Association of Gaming, and it's a nonprofit, a consortium, if you will, of gaming and esports companies designed to grow both the gaming and esports industry here in the Tampa Bay region, which is about 12 counties, but also to champion STEAM youth programs. Because as I'm sure you know, there are over 100 STEAM career opportunities in gaming and esports. It's not just playing for prizes or, or content creation, though those are great. So we just want to open up the door and windows of opportunities to youth around the region. Mm, that's amazing. Well, thank you again for lending your time and talents and perspectives to the show. Super excited to have you here. I would like to take a hot second, just one, to address the elephant in the room. Why the heck do we have a man on a woman in esports focused podcast? So, see, the thing is, is that we can't put the onus solely on women to fix a problem that they didn't create. So though there is definitely a place for women to share their perspectives and experiences, and those voices will definitely be on the show, it's also vitally important to be inclusive in acknowledging and addressing the many things that contribute to the overall lack of representation in this space. So now that we got out of the way, let's dive into our topic for the day. Democratizing esports. Diversity is the key to esports sustainability. So, Marcus, I want to ask, what drives you to be an advocate in this industry? Simply put, I want the esports industry to be as diverse, inclusive, and successful as the gaming industry. The gaming industry is over $175 billion industry with over 3 billion gamers worldwide. But if you look at esports, it's only half a percent of that, just under a billion dollars industry. Um, there's maybe a thousand or so professional players, and it just quite candidly is, is filled with white and Asian males when who are 16 to 24. It just doesn't represent the global gaming industry population and opportunity. So I just want to make the esports industry more like the gaming industry and less like the sports industry. Exactly. No, that's a great point. And, you know, just to bring up another interesting data point that I've run across in one of your LinkedIn po uh, posts is that 57% um, of gamers between the ages of six to 29 will be people of color, yet representation in the game development and esports space is woefully underwhelming. So there's a whopping 2% of African-Americans actively working in gaming and esports. And um, Statista released that 59% of U.S. gamers are male and 41% are female. So it certainly begs the question, with such a diverse landscape, why don't we see more representation? And that brings us to the next point. You are a minority in this space. You know, so I would like to spend some time talking about how, how do you feel about the struggles of the minority groups that are in gaming and esports? Um, even though each challenge the set of challenges faced are different. Are there themes or common struggles that all underrepresented groups face in the esports industry? I think there are some common themes. I think the, the biggest one, the most significant one is a lack of representation uh, in front of the camera because so much happens behind the scenes, but in front of the camera is what ends up on YouTube and Twitch and in Esports Observer, you know, various media outlets. When you don't see that representation as a gamer, I think naturally you'll believe that that space just isn't a space for you to have a career. And, and I think it's important for us to address that piece first, but it's also about creating equitable access from an infrastructure 
and support perspective. Uh, you know, minority communities typically game on mobile and console devices, and, and I, I pick on Call of Duty all the time because they're the ones who are most prominent at this. They, their game is on multiple platforms. And I just spoke to someone in Singapore yesterday. In Asia, they have significant support for mobile Call of Duty esports. But as you know, here in the U.S., there's practically none, no support for, for mobile Call of Duty esports. And I think when you don't have those infrastructures, you don't create opportunities for everyone to have a seat at the table. No, that's that's exactly right. I couldn't agree more. So just you said your first major encounter with esports was attending dream, speaking at DreamHack 2017. So how do you feel about where esports was then versus where it is now from a diversity perspective? Excluding the last 18 months, I think it's the same. Uh, I'm still seeing the same demographics in front of and behind the camera, the same demographics leading organizations, the same demographics on the news media outlets. Um, again, you know, we've seen Queens Collective and, and glad to see that group growing and flourishing. And obviously there's community and um, HBCU heroes and, and these different organizations sprouting up again in the last 18 months, but those are pockets. Those are almost exceptions to the rule and it needs to become not the exception, the standard. Mm. Mm. That's a great point. And sticking with that tangent just for a second, do you feel that some of the advocacy groups are too siloed in addressing the problem? Like, do we need there was an article, I think, in The Gamer a couple of weeks ago talking about how there needs to more to be in, uh, I might be saying this wrong, intersection between these different advocacy groups to collectively make the landscape more diverse. What do you think about that? I think that would help. That would bring more more support. That's the reason that we created the Tampa Association of Gaming. You know, I, I wasn't able to get the support from the Tampa Bay community with just Metarena. Um, High Point Gamer wasn't able to with just that one company. A handful of us were trying to get the support and we couldn't, but as a collective group, we now have our collective voice, our collective communities, our collective resources we can bring to the table to uh, drive change and, and scale change. So I think it would be helpful if we could get diverse groups, you know, women advocacy groups and, and, and black advocacy, advocacy groups and Latinx advocacy groups, all of them together to help create, again, a esports ecosystem that more closely resembles the gaming industry. But I, I am uh, opposed to these siloed organizations because I feel like that's a uh, self-perpetuating cycle where the group may be growing, but if you're only growing in that kind of silo, you're not really getting exposure to the larger ecosystem and affecting the larger ecosystem. Mm, that's a great observation. Thank you for that. Um, so putting your futurist cap on in a slightly doomsday scenario, maybe if esports doesn't become more diverse and inclusive, what do you think is going to happen to its growth trajectory in the United States? I think we'll see the esports ecosystem correct. I won't say crash. I've used the term bubble and crash frequently and, and I get a lot of flack for it. So I'll use the term correct because it's a well-guarded secret for the ecosystem that esports is actually not profitable. Um, and people will say, oh, we just have to give it years and look at what baseball and basketball and football did. But the reality is, is that the people who 
are invested in or leading the esports ecosystem now came from those traditional sports. And they brought over those that growth and those experiences into esports. That's why you have teams. That's why you have managers and jerseys and all the broadcast rights, all that stuff that makes esports alive now comes from traditional sports. But the revenue obviously isn't there. And the reason that it's not there is because esports is exclusive. And if it's not inclusive, you're not going to get the viewership. You're not going to get the, the merchandising spend, the spend in general. You just won't have the financial and attention and engagement that you need for the space to be sustainable long term. That's that, <laughs> that's that's good. Um, OK, so taking a step back, talking about some of the work that you did with Project MQ prior to starting with Metarena. We both know that esports would not exist without game developers, right? So, in your experience in the game development pool and in the esports side of things, what steps can game developers take to create a more inclusive space, particularly those game developers with titles that are deemed esports ready? I think it's helpful to bring in people from outside your lived experience and have them be your experts. So as an example, hypothetically, and you spoke on, on an event um, a couple of weeks ago with, with me and Jessica uh, Medeiros, just having people come in and, and speak from the perspective of a woman or, or from the black community, instead of trying to assume you understand what that community resonates with and what they need. I think doing that, and, and yes, that's that's paying an outside consultant, but the reality is you don't have that expertise inside your team, otherwise you wouldn't need a consultant. Hmm. That's a good point. It's an excellent point. Um, and you're doing a lot of interesting work. It's, as an indie game fan, it's definitely something that resonates deeply with me about the role indie games will play in advancing the esports scene. Um, can you tell us a little bit uh, more about your perspective and your thoughts on that? Certainly. And I wrote about this on the esports bars blog. Uh, esports bar is a major event group that produced an event in, in France and in South Korea and here in Miami, at least not last year, but they were doing several years before then, that I believe esports are, or indie games are the future of esports. And the reason for that initially is because of just the, the numbers. Indie games make up 75% of the supply of all games in the gaming industry, 1.3 million games in the industry. So naturally, there are more games from indie game developers that have esports potential than those from AAA publishers. But then when you dig deeper into that, in my experience, indie games typically are more niche focused and by extension, more family-friendly. Some of them are not, right? There are a lot of non-family-friendly indie games, but there are a lot there are. Um, you know, again, Minecraft started indie. Rocket League started indie. Brawlhalla started indie. League of Legends technically started indie, right? It was just the, the two founders and their team before Tencent came in, and now they're a multi-billion dollar company. But I, I think that you can get more family-friendly games out of those teams. And what they need is the visibility, the brand partnership, the, the ancillary revenue that comes from esports. But they also are more in tune to their communities. They depend on the community for the game to be successful. Whereas you might not be able to say the same thing about like Madden. Madden knows, you know, just like the sun's gonna come up tomorrow, they release the next Madden 2022. They can 
guarantee a percentage of gamers are automatically going to buy that game. You can't say that about the average indie game developer. So they, the indie game developer has to earn the trust and support of their community. Mm. Those are excellent observations. So do you feel in the same way that indie games could be the future of esports that they also play a big role in democratizing esports by extension? I do agree with that because again, you look at the wide variety of different types of games that you get out of indie. Um, and that's the philosophy behind MetaArena is that we believe you can go to a school and say, here are some racing games and some fishing games and some puzzle games and some painting games. Um, they're not necessarily Call of Duty or, or Halo or, or even Rocket League. If you cast a wide net, you can then engage a larger percentage of the gamers in your community. And that helps democratize access to esports. That's an excellent. Thank you. So an interesting thought came up in conversation as I was rolling through social media. And it was that maybe game developers providing incentives for esports organizations that are trying to be more diverse, maybe a way to propel uh, representation in the industry. Um, what would that look like? Would that work? Would it not work? What would it take, you know, for something like that to happen? You can say the word incentive. You, you could also easily say the word mandate. Uh, you know, it's the publishers control the space. So if they say, you know, if you don't have, and, and I, I hate to, to use kind of quotas because that creates a whole issue, a list of other issues. But if, if you have the publisher say, you know, we're going to, we, we would like to see our top teams have, I don't know, 40% of their team rosters have women in them or be, be made up of women, then the teams have to comply because the only way that they continue playing the game is that they maintain their, their the integrity of their business relationship with the game publishers. Uh, you know, you could do something else where you have specific sponsored prizes. Maybe that's less uh, draconian would have, you know, a, a million dollar women's tournament for Valorant. And you're starting, again, you know, Queen's Gaming Collective is starting to do things like that. But I, I agree with you. Yes, you could put together some financial incentives aligned with what the esports teams need, which is money, right? And they will probably comply with whatever the, the friendly request is. <laughs> <laughs> friendly request, was it speak softly and carry a big stick kind of approach. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, flipping the conversation, what would you like to see more of from esports organizations uh, to promote um, diversity and inclusion? I'd love to see more grassroots initiatives. Um, you know, I, I think that's what recreational, traditional recreational sports does very well as it taps into the local community. So, you know, quite candidly, I don't know any of the names or any of the players across the top 10 teams. They're esports my colleagues, uh, contemporaries who do know them very well, I just didn't come traditionally from that space. So, and I also don't follow traditional sports, so it's just not that interesting to me. But I do know that, you know, my next door neighbor would spend all of his time supporting his, his nieces and nephews if they were playing esports. So I think there's a greater opportunity to have that grassroots focus and then tap into the relationships and the loyalty and the community of a local, you know, market. That's a great observation. So by grassroots, does 
high school and collegiate esports kind of fold into that, or are they two very different things? I think that high school and collegiate can be grassroots. I also, this is not a popular opinion. I think that that those ecosystems are even more exclusive than traditional sports because it's always the top gamers that can have those coveted positions. It's Rocket League is an example. You've got three players and maybe an alternate. You compare that to basketball, there's 15 to 30 people on the team. If it's football, 50 plus. There's just not enough space for the entire student body to be actively participating. They're at best spectators or depending on the game, completely disengaged. Mm, that you're right. I didn't think about it that way. Um, from sticking with the high school and the collegiate um, thread for a second, what needs to be done in that space with so many esports teams you have um, NACE and NACIF doing a lot of different things. You have high school esports league, you have play versus you have, there's a whole bunch of organizations that serve the high school and college population. Um, and so what do high schools and colleges need to consider to forward diversity and inclusion for the next generation of esports professionals? This is going to sound counterintuitive. I think you still need, not need, I think there's value in being part of a NACE or a NACIF, but I, I think schools should own their own ecosystem, the accountability and responsibility for growing their own ecosystem, because you can't expect NACE or NACIF to understand, again, like who makes up your the percentages and the demographics of your student body, your 400 students or 1,600 students if it's a high school or tens of thousands if it's a college. But as a university, you can do that. You, you interact with these students or uh, high school, you interact with these students on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think at scale, if someone takes that approach, eventually it might cannibalize like a NACIF or a NACE because again, you can be more effective at a local level than, than a global organization can and more nimble. I think the same thing can be said about esports teams. I was talking to um, my esports director, Sebastian, about this yesterday. I think if at scale, if, you know, brands pay to sponsor a team anywhere from a six-figure to a low seven-figure number, imagine if they just repurpose that dollar, those dollars to just sponsoring their own team. Um, in that way, they can get, they, they already have a community they can engage and they can leverage smaller influencers who may still be great players, but just don't have the popularity to right. get get access to the community and the reach and the engagement they want. And so then I think it kind of shifts the relationship between brands and teams. That's an interesting point. I love ownership. That is that is so important. And it seems like it's it's easy, especially when we're talking about diversity and inclusion in esports to look for this massive pill that will solve like the entire problem instead of looking what you can do in your own community, your own organization, your own school, etc., to take ownership of the community or the people that are that are right there. I absolutely love that. That's that's phenomenal. Um, and I think that token it, it provides career development opportunities, right? You may be able to have a student be a leader this, you can't, I think you can't realistically expect parents or teachers to be as in tune in the spaces as current gamers, especially younger gamers. But that doesn't mean you can't have one of those gamer students 
volunteer to be like the liaison or the subject matter expert or the, the consultant, if you will, to help the organization as a school build its strategy. Hmm. No, that's excellent. And you, you brought in parents, you know, that's, that's, that's a massive part, you know, in a, addressing representation. So what, what as can current esports professionals, rising professionals, people in the space or close to it do as ambassadors to reach the parents that are raising the kids that may fuel the future? USF here in Tampa Bay is doing a great job of that with a new initiative, and, and maybe it's, it's early to call it a great job, but they've made significant inroads in, in that direction. They're hosting two camps this summer, esports camps. One is for students, and another one is for parents to help parents understand like the lingo of gaming, like GG is good game, right? Like helping them understand the terminology and the components, and that way the parents can speak more intelligently about esports to their students their kids, the students. So I think that's a great way. It all comes ultimately down to me to education, which is a core uh, you know, philosophy for metering. We wanna educate the entire community. And then that way we can all work together because we all have a, a shared understanding of the ecosystem on how to achieve any one group's goals, where it's parents' goals for their students or their kids, teachers' goals for the students, or even the, the kids' gamers' goals for their parents and their teachers. I wish. My teacher didn't delete the game off my calculator, but I also didn't spend time to educate her on why it was why it was important for me to learn I, that I was she didn't even know I was learning coding while I was doing that. Mm -hmm. So empowering students helps them empower teachers and empowering kids helps them, helps them empower parents. That's awesome. No, I that should be tweeted, quoted, put on shirts. Like that that's amazing because you know. The kids, they are they they are their own ambassadors, you know. And if they're not equipped with the the language, like you said, to say why this is important, then they're not going to be able to be that sparkle of influence in their own home. So that is that is awesome. So uh, before we head into our next segment of the show, I would like to open up the floor for anything that you would like to talk about um, in regards to. The democratization of esports. Well, one of the things I'm really excited about speaking about again Singapore is we're, we're actually the young lady who's over in Singapore is going to be relocating here to Tampa Bay, um, and I, I invited her to be a part of the leadership team for TAG Tampa Association of Gaming. Um, about three or four months ago, I partnered with Junior Achievement, so does TAG. It's a, one of the largest nonprofits in the country that helps provide like entrepreneurship and financial literacy general education support to underrepresented communities, youth. And they asked me to produce a video for TAG to just showcase the ecosystem to the students. And in the middle of that video, and I'll send it to you, the clip, I had to acknowledge the fact that I didn't have any women representative speakers in that video. And it's hypocritical of me to, to be an advocate for the space, you know, nationally, globally, you know, ecosystem-wide, and not have that representation here locally. And it's not because I don't want women on the leadership team. I do want women on the leadership team, but my network doesn't natively have, here in Tampa Bay, doesn't natively have women uh, that I, I have in my network, my community, who, who I recognize as leaders in the space. So I personally, A, had to apologize and B, have to make a concerted effort to go identify those leaders because I'm sure they exist. They're just not in my immediate view. So I think each leader needs to do that for their own organization. 
Mm, no, that's powerful. And I mean, kudos to you for even acknowledging that because some people would just let it, whoop, 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 I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> um, but yes, absolutely. So you're incredibly well connected on LinkedIn. Like I'm always seeing you promoting somebody, making introductions, you know, talking about uh, the latest news, um, providing insight and opinions. How do you use, how can one in your position, you know, uh, an esports leader or professional use net, uh, LinkedIn to expand their network, uh, to reach those people that they might not, you know, normally come rub elbows with? What What's some of the best practices and tips that you have for them? One of the things I recommend is, is a post content regularly. So I was actually looking at this analytics platform. It said that last year I posted on average 1.4 times a day. So at least once a day, sometimes more than once. Uh, posting regularly helps because LinkedIn wants people to stay on its platform. So if you're creating engaging content, it's going to continue to share your content with your network. And then when people like engaging my content, I actually actively go out and connect with them. My philosophy is if they will engage with one piece of my content, there's a greater than zero chance they'll engage with something else in the future. And I've been right. <laughs> so I, I think that, that that approach can work for anyone. If, you're, if you find someone who engages with your content, if it's esports, if it's indie games, if it's diversity and inclusion, if it's blockchain or crypto, and those are all the areas I work in, STEAM education, but whatever your industry is, um, just post content about the things that you're passionate about. And if people are resonating with it, invite them to be a part of your direct community so that they will see it. And then once they engage with it, now your third connection or, or second degree of separation, that person's connection now sees your content and they may engage. And so if you continue to do that, let them engage, you connect with them, you try to add value to them. I do that as well. Offer, how can I help? Um, then, then you're constantly investing into your ecosystem, into your community, and you improve the value of your community by investing in the people within it. Mm, no, that's great. And that, that's golden advice. So everybody out there listening, definitely take that into consideration. And how, how many new perspectives or takes have you received just by engage, going after the people who are engaging with your content? I, frankly, I don't see as many as I, I should because, you know, I'm wearing so many hats that I, I, I don't spend, and I was telling my esports director, he and I are going to try to do this more actively, spend more time engaging with other people's content, and not less time necessarily posting content. Maybe instead of posting 1.4 times a day, I can reduce it to once a day and spend that 0.4 percentage time engaging with other people's content. Because then not only am I learning more from their perspectives, but I'm adding value to their content and building those relationships. So I think that's a good way to do that. It's just engage with other people and even people who have differing opinions. You know, I, I think that my opinion is not very popular in the space. And most of what I see is kind of mainstream thought leadership about esports. Uh, maybe air quotes wasn't appropriate there, but <laughs> a thought leadership about esports. <laughs> But, but even though it differs from my opinion, it doesn't make it any less valuable. And it helps me inform my perspective and, and really helps me understand the gaps and the opportunities. Now that's sage advice right there. I love it. You know, Marcus, I'd like to thank you so, so much for your time and your insight today. It's been a true pleasure speaking with you, learning from you. And I hope that everybody that's watching has 
gotten more than a couple of gems using a reference from your Eat for Life podcast that you're on. Definitely go check that out yeah. if you haven't seen it already. Every Sunday, sorry, I'm plugging stuff before I'm supposed to, but yes, go check it out. Get some gems <laughs> if you're enticed by what you learned here. But yes, thank you again so much for, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you. If I can make a shameless plug, this has nothing to do with me, but uh, Knockout City is launching on Friday in two days. And you, you talk about diversity and inclusion and, and making it accessible. That game, I think, fundamentally represents the shift from what, what my esports director, Sebastian, refers to as esports 1.0, where we are now, to esports 2.0, where not only is it accessible by device, so you can play it on Nintendo Switch and, and Xbox and PlayStation and Steam, but because of Xbox's Game Pass, it's now accessible through mobile devices, iOS and Android, use a Bluetooth controller. Now, regardless of the device you have, anyone can play. The other thing they, they did was they were intentional about having diverse representation. So if you look at the cover image, there's a person of color and there's, there's a woman. Um, and they, they make sure that you can see yourself and represent yourself in the way you design your character so that your culture can be part of your character as opposed to saying, everyone play as a white male. And uh, you know, nothing against white males, but that's not the entire gaming ecosystem. It certainly doesn't represent the entire world population. Nope, that's valid. That's valid and fair. So Knockout City, go check it out. It's really cool. I've enjoyed what I've seen about it. Um, I do have one last question. There's always that one that sneaks in. Um, what is your greatest hope for the future of gaming and esports in the United States? My first hope is again that esports becomes more like the gaming industry, the diverse gaming industry. From a, it represents the the health or the wealth of diversity in player base, and obviously the game creation piece needs some work. But that that the player base in esports represents the player base in gaming, and that gaming can be used to create wealth generation and career opportunities for for under specifically underrepresented communities because that's where the greatest need is. Uh, I think that it should be an opportunity for anyone, regardless of their age, race, gender, or geography. But the greatest need is in underrepresented communities. And, and that's, again, one of the, the goals and missions and visions of MetaRena. Mm. You heard it. MetaRena's doing it. Marcus is doing it. Now, let's all band together and make it happen. If you want to follow Marcus and learn more about his work, you can check out the social handles below. I promise you, though, I promise, I promise, if you read his LinkedIn posts, it will elevate your perspective on the industry. I'm always like, dang, man, wow. <laughs> so definitely give him a follow on LinkedIn if you're on there. And for all of you who have tuned in for the show, thanks so much for joining us for the Women Esports podcast series powered by PNC. Uh, be sure to follow us on social media and tune in next month for the next episode in the series. We will have Jenna Drenton with uh, Loyola College, and she will be breaking down academic research that she and her team have conducted about gamer girls and what the, the seeds of the underrepresentation um, of women in esports, where that stems from, and what we can do to cut this problem off at the root. So be well, be great, and game on, and we will see you next time. See you later.